We do have a special passage in store this morning. As always, uh, Scripture is special to us. I think this is one that only comes up a few times in Scripture. And uh, there's a lot of, of theology, a lot of assumptions packed into this verse when Jesus talks to his disciples. And uh, we're looking at Luke 18, 15 through 17. Uh, Luke 18, 15 through 17. If you're joining us for the first time today, uh, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, usually I'll preach verse by verse, passage by passage through books of the Bible. And we've been doing that in Luke for some time now. Lord willing, we'll be done by this time next year. Uh, not in a hurry to get through it in any way whatsoever, but at the same time, uh, making sure we take it in the units that, that Luke wanted us to take it in as he wrote his precious gospel. Uh, Christ and his ministry is the theme, and, and particularly how he brings salvation to the world. That is the theme of the gospel of Luke. Particularly, uh, the theme verse is in Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the theme passage, the theme, the theme verse of the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus has been teaching that from the time the Gospel of Luke started. And we've been seeing God's grace and God's salvation worked out through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And when he's not proclaiming the Gospel to unbelievers, he's training up his disciples to live out the implications of the Gospel, to live out their sanctification, to live out their salvation. And here we come upon a text uh, sort of buried in the parables about the kingdom. Before this text, we saw the, the Pharisee and the tax collector parable that dealt with justification and, and who gets into the kingdom. And then after this, we'll see the story of the rich young ruler and uh, how that man was more concerned with money than he was with his own salvation. Let me read this text to you, Luke 18. Uh, 15 through 17, I've entitled the message, Children and the Kingdom. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter into it at all. It's one of the Bible's most cherished passages, uh, accounts in Scripture. It's mentioned three times, all in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Anytime something is mentioned in three Gospels, we know that it was important enough they wanted to record it. Now all things are important. But when something really stands out to the writers of Scripture, uh, they'll include it. And then, of course, if it comes three times and even four times, if it's in the Gospel of John, then we know we better pay attention. Now, as we look at this cherished passage, uh, we're thinking of children. We're thinking of the kingdom. How do those relate? And what kind of example is that to adults, to men and women who want to enter this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? But first of all, just to think of Jesus laying his hands on children. Uh, we read earlier in Luke where he took a child into his lap and, and described to the disciples uh, an example that they should learn from the child. 
and the child's uh, faith and dependence upon parents. The thinking of Jesus Christ, the creator of all mankind, taking one of his little creatures into his arms and, and, and just looking at it and praying for that child and blessing that child and laying his hands on that child. It, it indeed is a, a very cherished thought. And that's what the disciples saw here in this text. This shouldn't have come as a surprise to them, though. Jesus had already mentioned children many times in his ministry and even performed miracles to save the life of a child. Remember the nobleman's little son? If you read through the Gospel of John in John chapter 4, how Jesus saves that little boy. And then the uh, demon-possessed only son of the man that was at the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus comes down the mountain. The disciples who were left there could not cast the demon out. That was the one where the demon throws the boy into the fire. And then Jesus casts the demon out. But it says that it was his only son. Jairus' daughter. Jairus' daughter to whom Jesus tenderly said, Talitha kum, which in Aramaic is, is, is little one, the little girl, arise, come. And then we just know that Jesus in both his divinity and his humanity loved children. He truly loved children he wished them well, and he wanted to show his special care for them. Well, now we, we zoom in and look at this passage and see what it has to teach us about, about children, about the kingdom, and about God's saving grace. And I want you to see as we go through it, three truths about children in the kingdom. There's going to be three truths that we look at. And when you read this, you might think there's not much to it, but if you're familiar with some of the, the questions and theological the debates and thoughts out there on children in the kingdom, then I think uh, you'll be interested in this. And even if you haven't been around those, it's God's word, and I hope that you'll uh, learn from it and, and live by it. Well, the first truth about children in the kingdom is that children should be brought to Christ. Number one, children should be brought to Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord, wants children to be brought to Him. He wants them to be brought to Him physically in that day, And he wants them to be brought to him spiritually today. That's one of our primary tasks as a parent of children. Now, he's not teaching that specifically in his passage, but we get that from the fact that he wants children to come to him, even physically in his day. Look at verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. People were lining up to bring their babies to him. They were not just doing it once, but continuously, uh, not just one group of people one time, but all the people were continuously bringing all their different babies and young children to Jesus. And the Greek word here for babies means that any child from from birth, and in the context here, by the way, the word also could mean before birth, in the womb, like John the Baptist. But the context is here, they're bringing their, their newborns all the way up to the time the child stopped nursing which in that day was much longer than most today, up to three years minimum, uh, a mother would nurse her child. So birth to three years old, uh, moms, fathers are bringing their children to Jesus, wanting Him to touch them. Infants, newborns, toddlers. And the purpose for bringing them is so that Jesus could lay His hands on them, He could touch them. And the account in Matthew also adds to pray for them as well. This is a common practice in the first century where the Jews would take their children to a rabbi and ask him to to just hold the child, to lay hands on the child, to pray for the child. 
even today, many of us in ministry will go, and myself included, and try to see uh, newborn babies after they're born, just to pray with their parents, to pray for the child. And that's what was happening in this day. And the disciples wanted nothing to do with it. Look, it says, but when the disciples saw it, when they saw this happening continuously, they began rebuking them. Probably not even began. Probably better translated, they were just continuously rebuking them. And you can see people constantly coming, the disciples rebuking, and they're not listening. They're just continuing to try to get to Jesus. People are trying as hard as they can to get to Jesus, to get their children to Jesus. The disciples are sort of his, his, uh, his crew, his, his guards. They're keeping people away. They think he's too busy. He's too serious. He's got a bigger mission in store for the world than to see little children. In fact, children were seen in this culture as having no social status and were viewed as trivial. We joke sometimes today about insignificance of children, I think, but our culture today focuses much on youth, maybe too much at times. But in that day, there was no focus at all. Children, childhood, well, it was just a time that you waited in an adult's mind. I'll, I'll deal with my child when they're older, when they're young, when they're a young man, young woman. Really, mom's job is to make sure the child keeps growing until they get to that age. Children were seen as a waste of time, uh, trivial, no social status. One, one person said that it's difficult to find anything good about children in the ancient literature. Yet here's Jesus' compassion, as we see in the text. A great compassion on his part. He loved children. He wanted to bless them. No matter what the world thought of children, he is God. He is the Son of God, and He wants to hold them, and He wants to touch them, and He wants to bless them. It's a rare love and a, a rare care for children. But in verse 16, he's, he's angry enough that He rebukes them. He corrects His disciples. Look at this. It says, But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to Me, and do not hinder them. He both says what they should do and what they should stop doing. It's that important to him that he, he gives them the positive and the negative side of it. Another parallel in Mark ten fourteen says that Jesus was indignant, meaning angry with his disciples for this. There's only a few times Jesus gets angry in Scripture, and this is one of them. He's very upset with them that they would try to prevent children, babies, from coming. He has a special love, a special care for children. But notice how he expands the age range here. What did Luke record for us in verse 15? They were bringing even their babies. Now look at verse 16. But Jesus called for them saying, Permit the children. He's now now shown that the range of kids being brought is actually more than newborns, infants, and toddlers. Luke, of all the gospel writers, I think is the only one that used the term babies. I think Luke is saying there, even the little babies Jesus cared about. And then Jesus, of course, is saying all the children, all the children, no matter the age. Little children, he uses the word uh, paideon here, which instead of babies, expanded now to all children up to the age roughly of 12 or 13. Any child under the age of puberty would be called a paideon, a, a child. In the Bible, once a child turns 13, they're considered an adult in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the community in that day even. That's why you see bar mitzvahs today. That's when a, a young Jewish man 
is becoming, or young Jewish boys becoming a man at 13, they do a bar mitzvah. And they even have now started uh, bat mitzvahs for young girls. In the eyes of God, that's when a, a child becomes an adult. A young adult, but still an adult. There's no adolescent age in the Bible. That's a psychological term invented in the 1900s to describe this period of angst and this period of waiting and this period between childhood and all the responsibility that comes with adulthood. God's Word says, you're an adult. You hit puberty, you're 12, 13, you are now considered a young adult. And there's a lot of warnings in Scripture, isn't there? In Proverbs, for young men and young adults. But Jesus here is saying, let the children come to me. Let the children come to me. He's saying, allow them from birth to puberty to come to me and do not hinder them. Don't stop them. As his disciples, they were not to forbid or literally the word means don't stand in the way. Don't don't get in the way of these children coming to me. He doesn't even include their parents in this. He says, let them come to me. You can imagine that little ones that could walk and, and, you know, Children that were six, seven, eight, nine, ten were literally walking up to him, just wanting to get near him. And the parents were, were guiding them up there. So he's saying, let them come. And it, it angered Jesus Christ our Lord that anyone, especially his own followers, would prevent children from coming to him. They had, they had lost sight for a moment of God's love, of his mercy, of his care. As they often did, they had lost sight of Jesus and who he was. Thought that they could dictate his ministry. And uh, he won't have any of it. Well, just like these disciples hindered children from coming physically to Jesus, I think today uh, we often hinder our children from coming to Christ in a spiritual way. We do. We often can, can get in the way of our children. And I don't think for most of us parents that it is an active sin that we're working towards. It's more of a sin of omission. It's more of getting in the way of our children and not realizing it. I think that's one application we can pull out of it here. I mean, they're, they're literally bringing their children to Jesus. But what he's about to say in the next verse indicates that there is a good salvation reason to bring our kids to Christ. And what I hope to maybe even address next week in a special topic is, how can we plant the seeds of faith, the seeds of the gospel in children at this age so that later we'll see them sprout and give fruit. Maybe next week. But for today, let's consider this passage and think about how we might hinder our children from coming to Christ. You know, he's not here. We can't. If if he was here, we would want to take our children up to him, I think, and, and hand them over to Jesus. But he's not. Now we want to take our children to Christ for salvation. And this is Something we can, we can get in the way of. Often uh, we get in the way of it by not taking on the responsibility that rests upon parents, especially in believing parents. We've got to show our children Christ. Again, we can't do that physically because He's not here. Where do we need to take them to show them Christ? In the Word of God. That's where we do it, in the Word of God. We've got to, to teach our children what the Bible says about Jesus. We've got to teach our children that they are sinners. You know, they come out thinking that they are perfect and that they are God's gift to the world. And the Bible says they're God's gift to parents. But they don't even think they're sinners and know that they're sinners until later on, and we have to teach them that. And God's Word says that. 
And we've got to teach them what God expects. And we've got to teach them what the gospel is. And if they profess faith, we've got to teach them the commands of Christ. In Deuteronomy 6, God is giving the, the people the law once, once again before they go into the land, the promised land. And Moses reminds them before he really gets into his sermons, he says, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. All the time. About your life, you're supposed to be teaching your sons and by implication here, your daughters as well. You're supposed to be teaching them the word of God. That doesn't mean you literally every second are speaking scripture and talking about the things of scripture. I mean, God knows we've got to work and cook and clean and feed ourselves and do other things and change diapers with the kids, etc. But the principle still stands. Who's responsible? The parents. The father, mainly. But mom as well, underneath the father. Uh, Jesus, through his apostle Paul, uh, carries this principle over into the New Testament when Paul writes that fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4 you have children, you are called to bring them up in the instruction and admonition of the Lord. How do you do that? How do you discipline them in the Lord? Through the scriptures, through the Bible. Parents hinder their children from coming to Christ when they don't teach them the gospel and the Bible in general. And we all fail at this at times. We all, we all struggle to do this, I think. You have little children, they can't sit still for two seconds. You know, at my house, when we gather together and we do family discipleship, family worship, half the kids are fighting and the other half won't stop asking me questions and it takes an hour to get through one verse and it's only supposed to be 20 minutes. And those are the things that happen, you know. We all know that. That's no reason to give up. I mean, if we give up every time life is hard, then we might as well not become a Christian in the first place if it was up to us. But parents, we do hinder our children from coming to Christ when we don't teach them the scriptures. We must, it commands us to in these passages that I read. It's not an option, it's an imperative. Every parent should desire to glorify their Lord in this. Sometimes mom's going to teach him when dad's gone. Sometimes dad's going to say, you know, I'll be gone tonight. Can you handle that? Or during the day, mom's going to have a lot of opportunities as she sees the kids. But it is dad's responsibility to, to do it and make sure it's being done. Family discipleship, as I mentioned, is a great way to do that. I think it's expected in Scripture that you'll gather your kids at some point in, in the day, in the week, and, and teach them and disciple them, evangelize them. Uh, it should be done as regularly as possible, daily, just like you do your, your Bible reading and prayer. That's what we do. In our, it's only supposed to be 20 minutes, like I said, but you know, they come up with all kinds of questions, right? Where did angels come from? When did God make angels? And I'm trying to think of some of the questions we just got the other night. Um, when did angels fall and why did Satan sin? And that leads us to other passages. And uh, we, we read the word, we pray, and we even sing one hymn at least just to get the kids familiar with the hymn book, get them used to uh, what we're singing in church and these great hymns of God and the theology that's built in there. Paul tells Timothy, from childhood, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The word for childhood there, it's brephos. It's not padion, which Jesus uses, but it's brephos. It's the word for babies that, that Luke uses in, 
Luke 18, 15. It's babies, toddlers, infants. From the time you could listen to your parents, particularly here, his mother and his grandmother, they were reading the scriptures. They were telling the scriptures to him. They were teaching him the scriptures. It doesn't say he was saved at that age, but Paul says from that time you heard them and you've known them. Well, we know that he was saved later when Paul came through town and preached the gospel, but he had known the scriptures from the time he was a little one. So once he heard the gospel coming from Paul, suddenly it all came together and God worked it so that he was saved. You don't know what's, what's going to happen with these young ones, these babies, as you're teaching them and reading them and, and praying with them. As a church, we're not against Sunday school classes to come alongside parents and to help parents. But we are equipping you as a family and as parents. It is your responsibility and my responsibility as parents to make sure that we are following these commands. We'll help you with that. We'll show you where to go with that if you need help. We'll shepherd you in that. But it's the parent's responsibility. Another way that parents hinder children from coming to Christ is just by not bringing them to church, you know, People call themselves Christians. They don't, sometimes don't go to church. If they go, sometimes their kids don't come with them. Sometimes we, we look for reasons not to bring the kids because it's such a pain. We joke at our house, and I've heard other parents say that Satan works harder on Sunday morning to not get the family there than any other day of the week. And I think he does. I don't think he likes the fact that families are going to worship together. I don't think Satan wants a children to hear the gospel. So let's bring our children to church as much as possible. Uh, in the Old Testament, their kids were there and they were listening to the message. In the New Testament times, we can assume that as well. Let's let them hear the gospel. Let's let them hear the preaching, hear the singing, hear the prayers that we pray. Permit the children to come to Christ and do not hinder them. Secondly, this is a big one. The kingdom belongs to the children. And it's only half a verse that we're looking at here, 16b. But there's a lot assumed, a lot packed into this passage. The main reason, Jesus says here, for for bringing infants and children is because His kingdom will be filled with such children. And therefore, they should not be prevented from being around their king and knowing Him. We're just looking at the end of of 16, uh, but I want to read the the whole verse again so we get it in context. But Jesus uh, called for them, for the children... And telling the disciples, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. Why? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. That's the reason he gives that they should come. Should not be hindering the children because the kingdom, my kingdom, he's saying, belongs to them. That's a strong statement. I'm not sure that anywhere else he says it belongs to another group of people. And the four there is is really a because. Let them come because the kingdom belongs to such as these. These babies might have been nobodies in that society. They were, they were really nobody. But the kingdom belongs to nobodies. So this is exactly the type of person Jesus wants in his kingdom. A little baby who can do nothing for himself. So if he's going to get there, if he dies, for example, in infancy and is going to get there, it's got to be by the grace of God because he can't do anything. He's helpless. This is a, a clear and unqualified statement. So first, let's talk about what the passage is not saying. It's not saying that only those children right there will be in the kingdom. 
that the ones he's touching, right, that would be a different statement. It would say, the kingdom belongs to these. So he's not saying, let me touch these babies so they'll come into the kingdom. No. He says what? Such as these. Like these. We'll talk more about what that is in a moment. But it's also not saying anything here about infant baptism. Infant baptism. You have to look really hard to find infant baptism because it's not in the Bible. And so people will often cite this passage. If the children can come to Jesus and if they belong to the kingdom, then why not baptize them? Well, that's really a topic for a different message, but there's no water in this passage. You don't see any water. To get water in the passage, you've got to dump some water on your Bible and it's still technically not there. He's talking about the kingdom. He is, I think, talking about salvation, but he's not talking about baptism. Also, such as these here is not talking, I think about, it's not talking about adults who are part of the kingdom because they are like children. So in the next passage in verse 17, he's going to make a comparison, an analogy. But that's not what he's doing here in 16. He's just making a statement. Why let the children come? Because the the kingdom belongs to, to such as these. Literally, in the translation, for of such is the kingdom of God. Belongs is the interpretation for is there, but literally it's just for of such, as these kids that are coming to me, is the kingdom of God. In other words, it's going to be made up of such as these. So, what is he saying here? He's saying that many of those in the coming kingdom are going to be children. If we think this through, if we logically think this passage through, we have to come to the conclusion that if it belongs to them, he must be indicating that they're going to make up a large portion of it. The kingdom belongs to Christ. The kingdom belongs to God. So to go this far must mean that there's some emphasis here. There's going to be lots of children, I believe, in the kingdom. And if we think it through... The logical conclusion is infants and young children who die are going to populate this kingdom. I think that's what he's saying here. Don't prevent them from coming to me because these are exactly like the children who will be in the kingdom. Death rate is over, well over 50%. So half these kids who got touched by Jesus would die in the first year. The majority of children in that day and age would die in their first year of life. And it didn't get much better in the following years. I think that's why he's saying don't don't prevent them from coming to me because this is exactly like these children here. That's who's going to be making up a large part of the kingdom. In fact, it's the perfect example here of God's complete and sovereign grace. Because as I said, children, they can't do anything. They can't merit their own salvation. So it makes the analogy in verse 17 work because he says, and there that we've got to be like that and receive the kingdom like they do. Talk more, hopefully, on that passage in a moment. But here, children are totally helpless. So how, how are babies and children going to make up a large part of the kingdom? Well, they can't do any good works. They don't even know the law. They can't get in based on that. It's a perfect example of God's grace. So as I said in verse 17, he's going to make that analogy to adults. And he's going to say that anyone who comes into the kingdom must receive it like a child. The analogy only works if children actually receive the kingdom. If children don't receive the kingdom, then the analogy doesn't work in verse 17. And I don't think he's talking about here 
children who've expressed faith, although we know that happens as they get a little bit older. Babies, though, included here. Babies are coming to him. How do babies express faith? They don't. And he's saying, kingdom belongs to such as these. Newborns, all the way up to before puberty. Remember John the Baptist and his mother's womb? Leapt whenever Mary came and had Jesus in her womb. And he was filled with the Spirit, it says. How does a baby get filled with the Spirit? He can't express faith. He's not even out in the world yet. And yet he has the Holy Spirit. So God definitely works in extraordinary ways there. Let's look at this more deeply. Uh, God, I believe, teaches us through scriptures that infants and small children who die are received into heaven. That's what Jesus is assuming the disciples know. And I think they did know that because they knew their Old Testament well. I'm going to show you that in a moment. But they had forgotten. The king is here. The Messiah is here. The kingdom's coming. Let's get this thing going. Let's protect him from being bothered so he can do his job and get the kingdom here. And they'd forgotten what the Old Testament taught on this. Let's go to 2 Samuel. It's a classic passage here, 2 Samuel chapter 12. You recall David sinned with Bathsheba. And there was going to be a punishment. His, his son, first son through her, would die. Let's pick it up in 2 Samuel 12, 19. It's not enough just to tell you that I believe that's what Jesus is talking about. I want to show you why he's talking about that, why I think he's talking about children who die here, uh, starting in 2 Samuel 2:19. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, so the child is, is about to die, and he's been praying, he's been fasting, and now he sees his servants whispering together, he perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? This is a newborn baby here, an infant. They said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He went and worshipped. Then he came to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. So he returned to normal and he's even praising God after this event. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing you have done? They're shocked. You're supposed to be in mourning. You're supposed to be sad when your child dies. Why are you suddenly almost celebrating you're eating again and you're going to to the temple to worship. What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, this is what David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. So he he prays, he, he fasts, he weeps. Maybe God will answer his prayers and change his mind. Verse 23, but now he has died. Why should I fast? Why should I continue in mourning? Can I bring him back again? I would go to him, but he will not return to me. How, how, how is he going to go to him? I mean, if he, he has no clue where this child is going, maybe heaven, maybe hell, then he can't say, I will go to him. So David knows he's saved. David's blessed by the Holy Spirit. David wrote Psalms. David was a man after God's own heart. Yes, he sinned, but he knew. He knew his Bible. He knew the promises of God. He knew there was a coming Messiah. 
I think he even knew he prefigured that Messiah in some way. And he says, look, I can't bring the child back, but someday I'm going to go see him, so I might as well worship God and, and celebrate. Not, not that he had a big party, but he was celebrating the fact that he would go and see that child someday. So we see there that David did not mourn over his infant son, but he mourned over the death of his adult son later, didn't he? Remember Absalom? He doesn't say, I'll go and see him. He he almost morbidly is in this extensive weeping and mourning, right? One of his men has to come to him and shake him out of it. Why? Why is he mourning over Absalom? Because he knows Absalom is an adult man. He is a sinner. He has sinned greatly against God, and he won't see him again. He even says, I wish it was me and not Absalom who had died. So David knew his infant son would be in heaven because the boy had knowingly, not knowingly, the infant had not knowingly rebelled against God, but Absalom had. The infant had had not sinned with what the Old Testament called the sin of the high hand, but Absalom had. So how can this be? How How can children born with a sinful nature from Adam be punished eternally for it? That sounds kind of sentimental, so let's rephrase it then a bit more. Aren't, let's put it this way. Aren't all children born with a sinful nature from Adam punished eternally? Aren't people punished? I mean, isn't that what we believe? Reformed Christians? Reformational teaching? Well, I'll say yes. All are definitely born with a sin nature. Scripture's clear about that. Scripture's clear about that. And, and none are righteous, no, not even one. That's the Apostle Paul. So it's not going to contradict with what we are seeing other places in Scripture, is it? But all the judgment passages in the Bible, you know what they say about punishment, about judgment? You know what they specifically focus on? That people go to hell for their deeds, for their sins, for their active sins committed against God. You look at Revelation, and that's what it says. Revelation 20 Uh, 12 and 13. Let's go there quickly. Well, I'll go there. You don't have to. We're going to go back to the Old Testament in a moment. But I think you just need to get an idea if you never considered this. Revelation uh, 20, 12 through 13. And I saw the dead. This is a great white throne judgment, the final judgment. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. One sins all it takes, and their sinful deeds are recorded, and that's what's being looked at. And here's the rest of the dead. The sea gave up the dead, which were in it, and death, and Hades. Everywhere there's dead. The dead people from the time Christ comes back, and the people who've already been dead for some time, were all raised, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 21, verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I don't think here he's, he's talking about another group inside the lake of fire. He's describing all the people that are there. They did these deeds. Unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers and idolaters and liars. Most of these don't describe 
children, certainly not infants. It's often said, have you ever met an atheist child? To be an atheist child, almost your parents have to make you that. You don't, you don't meet an atheist, a small child. So what we're still dealing with, what about this sin nature? Well, I would say that God seems to indicate in his word that people are punished for their sinful deeds and not solely on the basis of having a sinful nature. Let's look at that. First, let's consider the, the passage we just looked at. Jesus blessed the little children. Were those little children expressing faith when he blessed them? doesn't say that in the text, and certainly babies can't express faith. So he's, for the only time in Scripture that we know of, blessing a class of non-believers. That's, that's an interesting category, isn't it? That, that children are being blessed by him, but he never blesses the Pharisees. He never blesses the adult, uh, sinful world. He doesn't even pray for them, it says. Let's go now back to Deuteronomy 1. Let's get an idea of how this might be. And remember, the Bible's written to adults, so we don't have all the answers that we want. But I'm going to show you that this doesn't uh, contradict true biblical theology recovered at the Reformation. Deuteronomy 1, 35. We're going into the land. Moses is preaching. Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb and some others that he mentions. Now skip over to verse 39. Moreover, your little ones, your little ones, your little children, who said would, uh, you said would become a prey, you said they would die like you, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there. And I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Were they sinful in their nature? Yeah, that's what Paul's saying in Romans 3, by the way. He's not using that to prove that that all babies will be punished for their sinful nature. He's actually saying, no one can claim to be perfect before God. You can't get into heaven based on your own works because no one is good, and the Scripture says that. He's addressing the argument in Romans 3 of, How do I get saved? It's got to be through grace. That's what he goes into in Romans 3, 25, 24, all the way through the rest of the book of Romans. So here's children. They don't know know good from evil. They don't understand right and wrong. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, 16. We're going to do a little survey of these passages here to understand how, maybe get an idea of how these things could be. How could little children get into the kingdom, even those who can't express faith. Twenty-four, sixteen. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin, his own acts of sin. Not sin nature, but the idea is his own acts of sin. So in Israel, they thought, well, we'll be punished because our fathers were punished for idolatry. And God reminds them here, and again in Ezekiel, that's not the case. You don't get punished for your father. And theologically, we can look at the Bible and say, will babies who haven't committed an act of sin be punished for Adam's sin? Is that what the Bible teaches? Or does the Bible say that Adam's sinful nature is what causes us then to sin and not be righteous before God? 1 Kings 14 
This is, a, this is an interesting example. Some, a lot of people believe that babies are saved that die, but they'll usually say it's just for believing parents. So often those who baptize infants or hold to a, the covenant of children will say that, yes, infants who die are elect if they're in a believing family. I think this case in 1 Kings 14.12 indicates that that's not uh, a limit that the Bible gives. Uh, 1 Kings 14.12 Now you arise, go to your house. So he's talking to Jeroboam here. If you were in my class this morning, remember Jeroboam is the evil king, brought idolatry into the nation of Israel. When you go, or when now you arise, go to your house, When your feet enter the city, the child will die. He just had a child. It's going to die. All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. Now, he had put a curse on this house and said that no one would be buried in this whole family, this whole house of Jeroboam, because they were sinful, they were evil. They're not to be buried. Let Let their bodies rot out in the country and in the streets. But look here in verse 13. All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. Why? For he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave. He's the only one that will be buried because in him something good was found toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. It's only one person surviving Jeroboam's family and it's this new baby, newborn, and something good was found in him. Does that mean he was born without a sinful nature? No, only Christ was born without a sinful nature. So God's doing something else here not the normal means of salvation that we're used to seeing in Scripture. Isaiah seven sixteen, prophesying here of the coming Messiah, but he kind of gives an idea of the age of things that will happen. When, when is the Messiah uh, going to do certain things? Isaiah seven sixteen. Right in the middle of a prophecy we often uh, read at Christmas. 7.16 For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. So there is a time when a child cannot know enough to refuse evil and choose good. Before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, this thing is going to happen. Jeremiah 19.4 Because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known and because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. What's happening here is they're burning their children to a false god, Moloch. And Jeremiah is prophesying the words of God against them. And it says they filled the place with the blood of the innocent. Well, no one's truly innocent before God because we're all born with a sinful nature. But he's saying in some sense a child has not chosen of their own volition and knowingly rebelled against God in sin. They're innocent only in that sense. And verse 5, And have built the high places of Baal, 
to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. And then he goes on, says, Behold, days are coming. So we have false idol worshipers in Israel whose children are called innocent. We have Jeroboam, the, one of the worst idolaters in the history of Israel, whose son seems to be blessed by God and, and says is good, something good was found in him. A couple more passages, Ezekiel 16. Got to bring your, your Bibles to church. because We're going to sometimes turn through it like this. There's some in front of the pew. Anybody in your family needs one, though. Uh, Ezekiel 16, 20. Moreover, so here's the same idea. You took your sons and daughters whom you had born to me. These were my kids that you, that you were born, that, that you uh, birthed. And you sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter? You slaughtered my children, not just the children of Israel in that sense, but these are my kids, and offer them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Last one, Jonah 4.11. Jonah 4.11. And the minor prophets. Jonah's mad. God's seems to have spared Nineveh. And God responds here in verse 11, chapter 4, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? Do adults know their difference between their right and left hand? Are, are ancient people so dumb that adults didn't even know their difference between their right and left hand? Of course the adults knew the difference between their right and left hand. Who is he talking about here? Children, young children, they, they don't even know the difference. So I've show, I showed you in the Bible. Maybe uh, you still are wondering what's going on here because I thought we're all born with a sinful nature. I've tried to make the case that the Bible doesn't say we're punished for that. But it's just some new thinking, something sentimental made up to help grieving parents who've lost a child. Well, it does help grieving parents who've lost a child because it's the truth of Scripture. But is this some Arminian thinking that's more Arminian than Calvinistic. No, it's nothing new but what Christians have believed throughout church history. It got choked out, I think, with the idea of infant baptism and baptismal regeneration. It kind of covered up this truth for a long time. And then it got brought back during the Reformation. All the Reformers believed this. In fact, they considered Arminian to say that children weren't saved who died in infancy. And the Arminians agreed with that thinking. There's John Calvin, the magisterial reformer. He preached in one of his sermons, infants who died were indeed elect and went to heaven. And those who predestined for hell, God didn't let them die in infancy, but made sure that they lived until later in life so they could grow up and, and be in this condition of sinful accountability. Not the age of accountability. More on that next week. Calvin said that you know an infant was elect because he had died. Well, how do you know? How do you know which ones are elect and not? Well, if they die in infancy, then you know. Westminster Confession of Faith, the Puritan document that all Presbyterians subscribe to, or most conservatives subscribe to, 
They said elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. It's different than what we know and what the Bible says to adults because faith is not expressed, but it's still by Christ. It's still through the Spirit. And it says, Who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Elect infants are shown to be elect by dying in infancy, the thing is saying. And it's also saying people who can't conceptualize things. The, the mentally handicapped. That's the Westminster Confession of Faith. John Newton, the great hymn writer, he wrote to his close friends who had lost a young child, I hope you are both well reconciled to the death of your child. I cannot be sorry for the death of infants. How many storms do they escape? Nor can I doubt that they are included in the election of grace. Spurgeon was shocked when people of his day said Calvinists believed that infants who died went to hell. Shocked Spurgeon to hear such a thing. People are going around saying, like they do today, right, God's sending babies to hell. This, this doctrine of election means that babies who aren't elect are going to go to hell. Spurgeon was not happy with that. He said he'd never heard of a Calvinist who actually believed that in his day. Whatever views our friends may hold upon the point, they are not necessarily connected with Calvinistic doctrine. I believe the Lord Jesus, who said, of such is the kingdom of heaven, our passage here, that the Lord Jesus does daily and constantly receive into his loving arms those tender ones who are only shown and then snatched away to heaven. Spurgeon went on to say, insofar as the salvation of infants is concerned, Arminians must become Calvinists. Because how else do you get in? The Arminians were saying, you've got to have free will. It's only by free will that you choose to have faith. Well, what about babies who die in infancy? They don't have the ability to express their free will. They were saying that either they didn't know or babies went to hell. And here's Calvinist saying, look, it's God's grace that saves no matter what. Yes, we express faith when we can, but if we can't, God's doing something else, but he's still by his grace. Charles Hodge, all who die in infancy are doubtless saved, but they're saved by grace. B.B. Warfield, he said, if even one infant in Scripture is said to be saved in death, it overturns the Arminian system. He goes on to write, doubtless the majority of the human race here, hitherto, up until that point, have entered into life by a non-Arminian pathway. Meaning, all these babies who died throughout time are entering heaven, entering the kingdom through a non-Arminian pathway. Not of their own free will, not of their own works, but of God's glorious grace. You know how many children have been aborted in the world since 1980? We looked it up this morning, and it was like ticking with a 1,000 going by every five minutes. 1.5 billion worldwide children have been murdered in the womb, not even counting the ones who've died after they've been born. How many of these were going to be in heaven? It belongs to such as these. Men like Al Mohler and John MacArthur have also written on this subject. I recommend the book Safe in the Arms of God if you want to See this fleshed out some more. Safe in the Arms of God by John MacArthur. It's not to say that children are without a sin nature or that they never sin. No one gets into the kingdom except through the merits of Christ. I believe, though, based on the scriptures just cited, that our Lord graciously and freely receives all those who die in infancy and even the children, not on the basis of their worth or their innocence, but by His grace which is freely given them through the atonement of Christ purchased on the cross. Have you ever wondered how God is going to make sure 
that he saves somebody from every tribe and tongue and people and nation? How's he going to do that when a lot of the tribes and peoples and tongues and nations have disappeared before Christ even came on the earth? Then it was another 1,900 years before missionaries went out to most of these cultures around the world. I mean, certainly they were spreading out throughout church history, but around the world, no, not until the last few hundred years. And even today, people have not been reached for Christ, tribes. How's that going to happen? Could it be that babies who died in those tribes and tongues and peoples and nations will be populating heaven? The primary reason not to prevent children from coming to Jesus is because the kingdom belongs to just such persons as these. That's his point. That's what the disciples probably remembered when he said that. They didn't even argue with him. Now he makes the analogy, lastly in verse 17, very quickly, adults must receive the kingdom like children. Number three, adults must receive the kingdom like children. So based on that background knowledge, and he reminds him of that, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter into it at all. Literally, they will never enter into it unless they receive it like a child. Is he talking about the humility of children? Well, he's already mentioned that previous in Luke. And he's not making that point here. He's saying, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. How do children receive the kingdom of God? Well, you could say by faith, and some do. But he just used the word children to cover all the way down to the babies that were being brought to him. Again, babies cannot knowingly express faith. So he's making an analogy here to adults. We've got to enter it the same way. Well, he calls us to repent and have faith. But what's the analogy here? Matthew 18 says it like this, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So first you're converted, then you're to become like children. How does a child receive the kingdom? How do they do it? Can a child do anything to earn his way into it? That's the analogy here. Can a child do anything to earn his way into the kingdom? He doesn't know the law, so he can't obey the law to get there. He can't ride in on his parents' coattails on his heritage, on his Jewish or or Christian heritage, the only way anyone gets into the kingdom is by the grace of God in Christ. So how do children receive it, even little babies who can't express faith? By the grace of Christ. How do adults receive it? By the grace of Christ. We've, We've almost played up faith and repentance, which is our command. We've almost played that up in, in our culture and forgotten about the grace of God in Christ. We made it about us. And he's saying, look, even in that day, it's like a child receives the kingdom. It's not about you. Yes, we are called. That's the vehicle. Faith and repentance are commanded. He'll come back to that again and again. It's the vehicle that drives us there. But the whole thing is designed and powered by the grace of God in Christ. A person is saved by the grace of God. We don't deserve the goodness of God. We don't deserve the mercy of God, but we receive it as His children, young or old. Yeah, we don't understand how God works with these little ones that He saves because the Bible's written to adults and not babies. We don't get that explanation, but we know that it's always by the grace of God in Christ. Psalm 131 sounds a lot like this. Psalm 131, verse 2, Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. 
a wean child just wants to hold his mom. He's not happy. He wants to be with his mom. That's how we are, the psalm writer says, with God. My, my soul within me just wants to rest against you, God. That is the point here. That we are to receive the kingdom by the grace of God. That's the only way to get in. There's no other way to get into it. It's by the grace of God in Christ. So with that idea in mind, I hope I've uh, at least shown you something to think about, if not convinced you, maybe you already agree, that children who die in infancy are safe. But we are to receive it just like they do. We are to receive it by grace. So let's recall that as we consider the um, teaching here. And I hope next week to come back with a special message on children, their salvation, and maybe even baptism with regards to children. Lord, we come before you today thankful that you recorded these things. Children are not insignificant. Babies are not insignificant to you, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit. Without this and a few other accounts, we might think that you're not, you're not concerned with little ones, but you are, Lord. And yes, it gives us great hope to know that these miscarriages that we often experience in families are little ones who've gone to be with you in heaven. But we believe it because we see it here in Scripture. And because of that, it gives us hope that we will indeed uh, see them once again. We don't know what they'll look like there. We don't know, Lord, how that will look in kingdom and in heaven forever and ever. But we give you great glory for showing us in Scripture just a few hints, a, a few glimpses of what your kingdom is like. We're thankful, O oh Lord, for your word. We're thankful for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the grace which you bring us to Christ. In his name, amen.